Well, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We'll look at the first, uh, well, I guess it's the whole chapter. <clears throat> so, Ecclesiastes 6. Um, last week, I suggested that we might skip this passage uh, because it shares a similar theme with last week's passage. And that's true. Uh, both passages have to do with the search for satisfaction in things like money and wealth and possessions, uh, the good material things in this world that make bad gods, you know, the love of money, uh, it's never going to satisfy you. Uh, last week we talked about how either rich or poor can love uh, money as a god, uh, go looking to it for a satisfaction that's never going to give, but how relationship with God actually can bring you true contentment, whether you're rich or poor. Having a relationship with God through faith in Jesus, that is the power to find satisfaction and contentment and the power to enjoy life's good things. Relationship with God through faith in Jesus is the power to be occupied with God's joy in our hearts, the power to be satisfied with God himself, and therefore to be satisfied with whatever he has given us. And this power, this uh, spiritual life, this very relationship is itself a gift from God. It's to be received with thanksgiving. This week, the emphasis of our passage is a little bit different, which is why we're not going to skip it after all. Um, Here, uh, Ecclesiastes describes this painful struggle of knowing that sometimes God gives wealth and possessions and uh, good material things, but he doesn't give the power to enjoy them. Ultimately, that means... It's because there's no relationship with God. And that's a difficult reality for us to accept. God can withhold the power to enjoy life's good things in a way that makes life truly miserable for people. What do we say about that? Um, Well, let's hear what God has to say about it. After all, he's the one who brings it up in his word. So let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, you know what is best for us, so we want to hear from you. Help us by your spirit as we consider your word together. Help us to wrestle with your word in relationship with you rather than apart from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vapor. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vapor and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything. Yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years, twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vapor 
and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vapor. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vaporous life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Ecclesiastes we've been looking at for several weeks now. It's a book that explores life under the sun. That's this recurring phrase. That means it's exploring life that is lived as if there were nothing beyond the sun. Life that is lived as if heaven weren't a real place. Life that is lived largely without reference to the God who reveals himself in the scriptures. It's one of the fundamental uh, starting place for all the explorations of Ecclesiastes. He walks all the avenues of life without God. It's a search for meaning, for substance, for goodness, for satisfaction, for anything lasting. And it's a search that comes up empty every single time, apart from a relationship with God. Everything in this world, everything good in this world, is as fleeting and futile as vapor, as a breath on a cold morning, unless it is seen in light of God, the Creator, the Savior, the Judge. Whether wisdom, wealth, work, pleasure, nothing can truly make our lives worthwhile. Nothing can bring real satisfaction in and of itself, especially because the terrible reality of death will bring an end to all these good things. It's only in a life with God that defeats death and transcends transience that we can taste all the good gifts that are given to us in our short lives and not be left with this dissatisfied bitterness about it all. And the fact that there is such a thing as this dissatisfied bitterness of life apart from God, that's what really bothers Ecclesiastes in this passage. He calls it a grievous evil that lies heavy on mankind. A man who does not have the power to enjoy God's good gifts to him. This man has it all. Wealth, possessions, honor. He lacks nothing of all that he desires. He has what the ancient world would consider all that a man can ask for. What more can you ask for than this? A ridiculously long life with an absurd number of children. That was was real success in the ancient world. He has it all, but it's not enough. Because he does not have the power to enjoy them. It says in verse 3, his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. So there's nothing wrong with the good things in his life. Nothing wrong with the wealth and possessions and honor that God has given. There's something wrong at the level of his soul. He has that dissatisfied bitterness about all the good things in his life. Because no matter how long his life, it's still spoiled by death. And he can't see any good that defeats death and transcends transience of everything. He will die. It can't be helped. And that death ruins everything for him no matter how much he has, or even what kind of legacy he leaves behind to his children. This is a very raw subject. So Ecclesiastes uses the most raw language that you could imagine. I mean, this is painful stuff to read out loud. 
right? It would be better for a stillborn child who never saw the light of day than to be this man whose life is so tragically unfulfilled. Both are going to die anyway. Might as well skip the terrible, futile struggle to find meaning and satisfaction. And he also has no burial. Right? It's the unfulfilling culmination to an unfulfilling life. It just fizzles out unceremoniously. In the historical context uh, that this was written in, burials meant something to God's people. Right? Funerals, they mean something. Just like today for Christians, they mean something. Burials are a time for thanksgiving to God for the true significance of a life. Burials are time for a testimony to the hope of resurrection in Christ. Our trust that we have eternal life with God that's never going to end. We believe that there is life with God that defeats death. There is life with God that transcends the transience of this world. There is life with God beyond the sun in heaven. And we bury our dead with this confession, with this hope, that this, this declaration that this life wasn't for nothing. Because of God's grace. So cap off a life of the bitter dissatisfaction of the soul with the dishonor and the despair of no burial. That's an ending to this man's story that makes a pronouncement over the the man's whole life. And for God's people in the ancient world, that pronouncement, it was clear. Here was a man who'd been forsaken by God or, or cursed by God. Why would God give a man all good things in life but not give him the power to enjoy them? Ultimately, the painful question here, the painful question of Ecclesiastes is, why would God not give this man the gift of relationship with himself? So that he'd have a life with God that defeats death and transcends transience, a life full of true significance and satisfaction in God, so that he'd be occupied with God's joy in his heart. Why wouldn't God give him that? Give him all the other good things? So this hypothetical man in Ecclesiastes here, he represents a lot of real people in the world. It's a miserable life not knowing God. It's a miserable life not knowing God's forgiveness, not participating in his love. It's a miserable life full of self-righteousness and self-justification. It's a miserable life full of fears and suspicions and hatred and insatiable greed and lust. And Ecclesiastes points out the struggle that so many of us have with this reality. God could fulfill the longings of so many miserable people. He could satisfy all their desires and answer all their questions by giving himself to them. So why wouldn't he do that? It disturbs us that so many people would be living in such misery. It's a distressing reality that lies heavy on mankind, Ecclesiastes says. It bothers us in our judgments, in our, in our finite, fallen, faulty judgments. It deeply disturbs us. Maybe you've wondered how a good God could be this way, giving people life and breath and every good thing, yet not the power to truly and deeply enjoy it all, not giving salvation, not giving the hope of an eternal relationship with himself. Maybe you struggle with that. Maybe uh, you think you're the only one to struggle with this problem. Well, Ecclesiastes wrote about it 3,000 years ago. Maybe you'd be surprised to discover a camaraderie in the church that actually a lot of us are distressed by this reality. We don't want to be quick to make excuses or offer trite explanations just to smooth over the big problems that we have with things like this. The scriptures are honest about things like this. If it weren't written, 
right here in God's word, I probably would want to avoid this topic because it's so painful. But if Ecclesiastes isn't embarrassed to say, this really bothers me, and his words are Holy Scripture, then we don't need to be embarrassed by it to talk about it. Right, so we confess that this is a very difficult problem. It makes no sense to us why God would allow such scenarios like this to play out over all over the whole world and, and throughout history. But we do believe that he does it, and the scriptures teach it again and again. God hardened Pharaoh's heart against Moses and against the people of Israel, which resulted in the judgment and destruction of Pharaoh and his whole army. God ordained that Judas would betray the Lord Jesus, which led him to the terrible fate of suicide. It was a man completely ruined by his guilt. God ordained that. Jesus even said in Mark 14, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he'd not been born, if he'd been stillborn. That's hard to accept. Period. Full stop. That's hard to accept. It easily raises the question, why? How is that right? Why would God grant spiritual relationship and sal- uh, salvation and the power to enjoy the good things in life to some and not to others? Why would it be the will of a good God that some of us would continue apart from him and suffer such misery and dissatisfied bitterness? And we question God's judgment on the matter. Paul feels this question in uh, Romans 9, our New Testament reading that David read. He says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? In our passage, Ecclesiastes puts it this way in verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it's known what man is and that he's not able to dispute with one who's stronger than he. So God is the one who names everything that comes to pass. Right? Naming is um, what the one who is in charge does. Right? He's the one with sovereign authority. He's the one with control over all things, including who has the spiritual power to enjoy life with God and who does not. And we're not in a position to dispute the matter with him. Verse 11, the more words, the more vapor. And what advantage? What's the advantage to man? So when you dispute the matter with God, when you argue against God, you're... You're saying your judgment's better than his. That you know better than he does. But do you really? Have you ever been wrong about anything? Do you imagine that you've been right while God has been wrong? We believe that Jesus was never wrong about anything. Read the Gospels. Find something Jesus ever said or did that was wrong. We believe that God has never been wrong about anything that he's done. So, so when we pile up words and arguments, blowing hot air, basically, Ecclesiastes says, railing against God for what we feel to be the error of his ways, 
exalting our judgment above his. Do we really expect that to do us any good? What advantage is there to doing that? If we reject God's ability to judge, if we prefer our judgment to his judgment, it only has the effect of rendering all things ultimately meaningless. Untethering reality from the one who's the ground of all being. If we want true righteousness, we want things like true meaning and true satisfaction, we have to receive them from God. We have to submit to his reality. The clay can't reject the potter without undermining its own existence. We must believe that the God who's revealed himself being truly righteous and good and wise, he's to be trusted with matters that are far beyond us. In Romans 9, Paul proposes one possible answer to the question, why, why does God have saving mercy on some and not on others? <clears throat> uh, so continuing in that New Testament reading, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make, his, make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he's prepared beforehand for glory? So God hardened Pharaoh's heart, which led to Pharaoh's destruction, which ultimately led to the deliverance of God's people. God ordained Judas's betrayal, which led to Jesus' death, which ultimately led not just to the crucifixion, but to the resurrection of Jesus, which means mercy and salvation and the riches of glory for God's people. Have you ever considered the fact that God's will, God's judgments, might be better than your instinctive opinions about what is fair and right? That they might well be just beyond your ability to even to comprehend. After all, he's God, and you're not. And you can't even possibly know what that means. We can't even say what it is for God to be God. Even when he tells us, we don't really know what it means. So how can we presume to know his job better than he does? If you need to be the one who judges the matter, then you're going to be bitterly dissatisfied with this. If you need to be the one who understands everything God does before being okay with God doing it, then this is all going to sound terrible to you. Verse 12, who knows what's good for man while he lives the few days of his vaporous life, which he passes like a shadow. We just have questions like that. That's what Ecclesiastes does. He's asked these hard questions. That's all we've got. We've got questions. God has the answers. He alone knows what is good for us. He's the only good judge, and he always does what is good. Disputing the matter with him will only reveal our ignorance. It's like Job, whose life God allowed to be ruined. But then Job turns around, he demands answers that make sense to him. He demands that God justify himself and justify his actions to Job. And when Job has a real encounter, a true encounter with the living God, he regretted having argued with God over it at all. He says in uh, chapter 40, Job 40, Behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Or chapter 42, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. 
So when you wrestle with questions like, why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow misery? Why does God allow our loved ones to continue living apart from him? Why does God give himself to some in life-changing relationship, but not to everybody? You must ask, who's the one doing these things? You've got to ask, who else would you trust to handle these things? To whom do you entrust the judgment of all men? Who knows what is good for man while he lives his brief life? It is, is it you? Could it possibly be you that, that knows what is good for mankind? Or is it the Lord God, the only good judge? Can you step back from the throne of judgment and confess, even if you can't make sense of what God is doing, that the God who's revealed himself in these scriptures is to be trusted? Trusted above your own judgment. Even if it seems a grievous evil to you that lies heavy upon you, do you take any comfort in knowing? Comfort in knowing that God is the judge, that God knows what's best, that God has his reasons, that the God whose goodness far surpasses our own, he's doing his goodwill. Can you trust the judgment of a God who sent his son to the cross for your salvation? We misjudged him. When he sent his son into the world, we misjudged him. We misjudged the whole thing, everything that he was doing. Even his own people did that. We all misjudged. When Jesus came into the world and wound up on that cross, we all thought he's forsaken and abandoned by God. He's cursed by God. But he was forsaken. He was accursed. He was crucified for our sins. He suffered God's righteous judgment in our place, on our behalf, so that we might hear the judgment that he deserved. You're innocent, you're unstained, you're beloved. How is that fair? How is that righteous? Do do you even understand that? How is that good when the good Lord Jesus is sent to his death so that bad people, real bad people, real sinners, like you and me, can not only go free and suffer no condemnation, but enter into eternal life in the divine love of God. God knows what's good for man. And he's done it. He always does it. And because of Jesus' faithfulness, God has given all his judgment into Christ's hands. Jesus is the true judge who will judge all the living and the dead. All will meet Jesus. Everybody. Whoever lived. All will meet Jesus. All will stand before Jesus. We know some who have already gone from this life to meet him. And we trust that that meeting is good because of Jesus. Because he's the one there. Do you trust Jesus to do the right and good thing as your loved ones stand before him? As you stand before him? Do you trust Jesus to judge with God's own holy judgment? That's a judgment that's better than yours. From what can be known about Jesus from the Gospels, from what you know about Jesus, can you trust him? He's defeated death. He's transcended transience to win eternal life with with God and give it to his people. Shouldn't Shouldn't you be delighted and relieved to trust him of all people 
to do what he thinks is right. Would you rather be in his place? Or do you find some comfort and some peace knowing that Jesus, the Savior who laid down his life to show sinners mercy, he's the true judge who knows what is good for man. This doesn't mean we don't still have painful questions. It just means that we need to trust Jesus, especially if the answers are beyond us. And, you know, maybe God lets some of us linger in dissatisfied bitterness in order to draw us, finally, to a place where we find that relationship with him is the only way to true satisfaction and joy in this life and the next. Who knows? God knows. Jesus knows. He's the Lord and he's the judge. And we're definitely not. That's good. That's good. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, before anything else, we confess that you are good, that your son, Jesus, is good, and that you know what is good for us. We also struggle deeply with questions about why you do what you do. We thank you that you don't forsake us, even though we have such struggles. And we pray that even though we struggle, and especially in our struggles, that you would help us to look to Jesus, to trust Jesus, and find peace, because your judgment is to be trusted above even our own. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.